distinguished guests and dear friends, on behalf of the Library's Council and all of my colleagues, welcome to the National Library of Australia and to the Ray Matthew Lecture, which celebrates the achievements of Australian writers. I'm Anne-Marie Schwedlich, the Director General of the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for this land that we are now privileged to call home. This lecture honours Ray Matthew, who is chiefly remembered as a playwright, but who was also an accomplished poet and author of short stories, novels, criticism and non-fiction. He published three anthologies of poetry, numerous poems in magazines, many short stories, plays, including the much-performed A Spring Song, a novel, studies of Miles Franklin and Charles Blackman, radio plays and film scripts. Ray Matthew left Australia in 1960, despite high praise from contemporaries such as Max Harris, who said that Matthew could write like nobody's business, his promise was never fully realised. Although he kept writing until his death, he had no new plays or books published after 1967. Life in New York did bring him the friendship and patronage of Paul and Ava Colesman, whose New York apartment he shared from 1968 until the end of his life in 2002, aged 73. The library began acquiring Ray Matthews' papers in 1977. After his death, the collection was enhanced significantly by editions presented by Ava Colesman. Covering five decades, the papers include letters, diaries, observation books, literary drafts, programs, press cuttings, and Pixie O'Harris's artwork. The Ray Matthew and Ava Colesman Trust is a generous bequest made to the library by Ava Colesman in honour of her friend to support and promote Australian writing. Ava Colesman's legacy has enabled the library to support Australia's writing community and to bring to light some of Ray Matthews' unknown work, to bolster our events program and to fund an online project to make accessible to researchers the papers of Australian writers. We are delighted that Alana Valentine agreed to deliver the 2016 Ray Matthew Lecture. Alana is a celebrated and award-winning playwright. In 2016 alone, five of her plays will be performed around Australia and one in Maryland in the United States. Ladies' Day, One Billion Beats, which was co-written with poet Romaine Morton, Cold Light, adapted from Frank Morehouse's novel, Tree Widows and Letters to Lindy, explore a range of Australian experiences. Reviewing Ladies' Day, Theatre Now describes it as, and I quote, going from incredible highs to devastating lows in short amounts of time. But then that's what happens in life and stands as testament to her ability to capture life as she sees it. She's giving a voice to inhabitants of this world who may not always get the opportunity to speak. And I think that we can safely extend this estimation to all of Alana's 38 produced stage plays. 
Elena is also an award-winning radio playwright with 28 produced radio dramas and features. Her script, The Ravens, about a young woman trying to escape a life of prostitution, won the 2014 BBC International Radio Playwriting Competition in the category for writers with English as a first language. Judges acclaimed her work as an ambitious play, admirably creating an authentic world of addiction with a naturalism of language and believability of character. This authenticity is explained beautifully by Alana herself when she says, the kernel of my artistry is a refusal to rely on received wisdom from the media, history books, or other secondary sources. I want to hold in my hand the walking stick topped with gold mined from the Ballarat fields. I want to touch for myself the items that rats pulled out from under the floorboards at the Hyde Park barracks. I just don't do well with second-hand information. And so it was inevitable that Alana and the library would meet. In 2013, Alana used her Harold White Fellowship, immersed in our collection, imaginatively researching the papers of Lindy Creighton Chamberlain. This has resulted in the play Letters to Lindy, which will be performed at the Canberra Theatre from the 9th to the 13th of August. The play explores the relationship, the public's relationship, with one of Australia's most well-known and polarizing figures, drawing on the extraordinary 20,000 letters written to Lindy that the library holds in its collection. We're delighted that a further collaboration between Alana and the library is in the wings, as the library will publish the result of Alana's transformation of letters to Lindy into a book. I ask you to please welcome Alana Valentine to deliver the 2016 Ray Matthew Lecture titled, Enter the Playwright, Pulling Drama from the Archive Box. Welcome, Alana. I pulled a small blue Christmas card from the archive box. On the cover was Santa on his sled, and inside there was a concealed speaker with the words, push for music. You've got to wonder what compelled me to comply so readily, so easily with its instruction in the hushed confines of the National Library of Australia manuscript reading room. It's just that it was such a small card, and I presumed it would have a pretty flimsy speaker inside, um, not capable of any volume. No, really, I was just so seduced by the promise of making something happen that I pressed softly on the indicated place. Ding, ding, da ding, 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 ding. The tinny but all too insistent tune of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came blaring from the card. 
Other researchers in the room, stern-faced academics, looked up at me with scowling faces. I pushed the card again, harder this time, trying to stop it, but the tune continued to ring enthusiastically out. Now others studying in the room were turning around to express their displeasure, like irritated commuters in the quiet carriage of a southbound train. But the little try-hard speaker in the gremlin-possessed card was taking this chance for all it was worth. It had been repressed in this archive for long enough, and who knew when it would ever get a chance again. Now the librarian was craning her neck over the desk and twitching her face in strong disdain. In another moment, she would actually have to get up and then I would be in real trouble. Spoken about in the staff room, forever referred to as that playwright with the reindeer card routine, the butt of ho, ho, ho and Christmas choir jokes when I signed in each morning, all this flashed before me, but prod as I might, I could not gag the ebullient little tune coming from this deceptively frail card. And since the card was part of Mrs Lindy Chamberlain Creighton's restricted access special permission material, neither could I run out of the room with it. I tried to muffle it under my Canberra issue scarf so that the music sounded like it was in a very deep well. And now the librarian was getting up and coming toward me. Just as she neared my desk, the tune came to a sudden end, and smiling, I quietly opened the card to show her the push for music command. Oops, I said, and hurriedly dropped it back into its blue manila folder. She went back to her desk, only the slightest shake of her head, betraying how truly pathetic she thought I was for pushing it in the first place. I know that the Ray Matthew Lecture has, in its previous incarnations, concentrated on the subject of exile and expatriation for the Australian writer. I was born in Paddington Women's Hospital in Sydney and I spent my childhood in the southern Sydney suburb of Cogra when the CSR sugar refinery at Piermont, where my grandfather worked as a fitter and turner, innovatively thought to provide housing loans to its employees to whom banks would not lend. I went to Carlton South Primary School and St George Girls High School and I now live a literal stone's throw from where my grandparents grew up in the inner city suburb of Redfern. So I can enthusiastically confirm that exile and expatriation are not subjects about which I can speak with any passion. Considering that there are already five erudite and stimulating former Ray Matthew lectures about this subject to enjoy, perhaps it is not too disappointing that I must abandon the field to their expertise and instead say, enter the playwright, pulling drama from an archive box, because Ray Matthew was a playwright and I am the first working playwright to be invited to give this address. I've also spent the last three years working in the archives of the National Library of Australia, and it is this endeavour which I'm honoured to use a lecture named after my esteemed playwright forebear to explore. Playwrights may be a little different from other writers. Some say we're more given to flamboyance and have a greater need for social interaction, chattier then. 
Certainly, there is a palpable desire to entertain and wring a laugh, a gasp, a tear, an abiding moment of deeply silent realisation from our audiences. What am I talking about? A tear? I want people to have trouble breathing because they are sobbing with wild abandon. I want audiences to laugh so hard that they indecorously break wind beside their well-heeled companions. I want such a shocked and astonished silence to form that audiences forget to move their hands to clap. The world stops spinning on its axis. People leap to their feet and embrace their neighbour with forgiveness and understanding. And I want them to do it right in this moment, in my presence, in a room where I can watch them. Do you think we playwrights are just that tiny bit more intense? And lest you think it is just me, listen to the beginning of Mr Matthews' play, A Spring Song. His stage direction is, the beginning is to be played rhythmically, unrealistically, rather breathlessly. Kerry, it's a spring day, there isn't a cloud in the sky. The sky's so thin it's made of glass. If you touched it, it would ring. There's a breeze in the air, the sun's getting hot, heavy as a hammer, but there's a breeze in the air. It tastes in the mouth, it tastes like the mountains. It's a spring day. Jeff, it's a spring day, the mist has lifted, the air's so clear it's made of glass. If you looked, you'd see anything. The sun's in the sky, the day has a tang, as heady as laughing, the sun's in the sky. It makes you laugh, it tastes like wine. It's a spring day. I also listened to Mr Matthew read poetry in the Hazel de Berg collection. Introducing his poem, Morning Song, he said, it's a song which refers to the morning time in everyone's life when you feel young and happiness seems possible. Crucially different about playwrights is the fact that our work remains unfinished, unrealised, unmade, if it is not embodied in the mouths of our greatest collaborators, members of the noble profession thespian. The foundation of our art form is the ambition to create a structure in which actors, directors, designers can actually play, can most rapturously liberate their imagination to wonder and invention. We are playwrights, which means that our deepest, most sincere belief is in the sacred nature of play, in the transformative abiding faith that empathy for another is the most enduring form of radical compassion and one of the most effective motors for change in the real world. For all the facades and masks employed to render our craft, playwrights are exceptionally ruthless judges of human nature because playwrights believe not what people say but what they do. The material with which we draw is not costume or description or even dialogue. The substance of a play is action, not what the community or the characters or the society say of themselves, but what they actually do. If all writers are the lie detectors of our culture, then playwrights are quite literally the polygraph takers, sieving the words and thoughts of our contemporaries through the body, the brain and the spirit in action to see what holds fast and true. The kind of playwriting that I do often based on interviews and verbatim transcripts, now archives and manuscripts, aims to reflect a community back to itself. 
trusting that a theatrically vivid community selfie may both amuse and intrigue, that the observations of an outsider might compel self-reflection and self-knowledge in an interesting, sometimes uncomfortable, but hopefully enlightening manner. For instance, Canberra people, I learned, judge more than anything inarticulacy, verbal clumsiness, lack of lucidity. This is a town where I observed wit and the ability to speak cleverly at an absolute premium. Canberrans did not seem to me impervious to physical attractiveness. They recognise its potency and respect it as a necessary foil. But I found that it is the ability to think, to make an argument, to play word games that trumps all other assets here. This is not Melbourne where you have to dress well. <laughs> or Sydney where you have to undress well. <laughs> or Perth where you have to marry well. This is the national capital, and woe betide if you don't know how to speak well. And not only speak well, I say, but generally speak in generally low confidential tones about some salient piece of seemingly cryptic news. <laughs> there is something about the proximity of parliamentary power that makes every whispered indication of interest scintillating. But I also notice that there is something habitual, tactical about these apparent intimate offerings. Everyone in Canberra seems to speak in this way, this, I'm telling you personally, something really special. <laughs> it was quite dizzying over the time I spent here. That time began as a three-month Harold White Fellowship in 2013, but I became so unreservedly besotted by Canberra, its residents and its impeccable archives, that the fellowship assistant Beth Mansfield quickly dubbed me a boomerang, one of those returning fellows who seemed to come back year after year. And I did, dredging the archives and renewing my deep respect for the data management skills and meticulous persistence of researchers and academics. The fellowship was gifted for me to explore, with her permission, the 199 boxes of letters, cards and other material sent to Mrs Lindy Chamberlain Creighton during the 35 years since her, since her daughter Azaria was taken by a dingo at Ayers Rock, or Uluru, as the local Anangu have always called it. More than 20,000 items in paper and cards since the 17th of August 1980. Thousands more emails and text messages still flowing in, two out of three now, apologies. As a dramatist, I was attracted to this collection because of the special relationship Mrs Chamberlain Creighton has with the National Library and because it seemed to be potentially a rare snapshot of 1980s Australia, an opportunity to move past the opinion of commentators and historians of the time, the many men of letters and public distinction held in the archive, and go directly to the source of hitherto uncelebrated Australian voices, a community not in the flesh but in archive boxes, their voices like my little push-for-music gremlin, metaphorically struggling to get out. And what a diverse community I found. Poets, supporters and vicious detractors. People sending apologies, advice, theories and frequent admonishments. People who have been touched by God to write, moved with fury to write. Those who have had their lives changed or altered or indelibly affected by their encounter with Lindy and her story. Pornographers, eccentrics and hundreds of children. 
people who spent thousands of hours writing to newspapers and politicians and raising funds, people who have donated their savings and their time and every ounce of their energy, New Zealanders telling Lindy to leave Australia. And as the story penetrated internationally, thousands of international correspondents. As my reading of these letters progressed, I began to mentally group letters into types, calibrating, I suppose, if I was copying, collecting enough of that type in my rummagings. It was not my ambition to be authoritative or comprehensive, as noble as those scholarly ethics are. I have also not tried to be especially fair or thorough as a chronicler of this collection. Call it artistic prerogative or poetic license. I have taken Cavantes' edict in Don Quixote, this belongs among those things which should not be investigated to the very end, as my mantra. So I've given myself to the contents of about one third of the material, 75 boxes in total, and I have been drawn to stories of shared suffering, vituperative accusation and spiteful conjecture, as well as the breathtaking kindness of complete strangers. I came to this collection to see what people really do reach for in times of confusion, trouble and helplessness. How human beings might struggle to understand the experience of someone whose own situation is so far from their own lives. In a tragedy such as that of Lindy Chamberlain, so radically outside the frame of the experience of any other living person, is it even possible to comprehend her life? The poet W.H. Auden asked, and how reliable can a truth be that is got by observing oneself and just inserting a knot? I was not looking here only for the well-expressed, the lucid sentiment, the colourful, humorous or engaging turn of phrase, though I can't deny that I was always thrilled when I found it. I was in fact looking as keenly, I might even say more keenly, for the clumsy, humble, sometimes tendentious, sometimes vapid platitudes that people reach for when they just don't know or don't believe they can find a way to express the deepest feelings of empathy they have. Even madmen manage to convey unwelcome truths in lonely gibberish, gibberish says Auden. What is it in human nature, I asked, that makes someone push past their own inarticulate choked abilities and write to someone whom they have never met? And is the fact that they do, I conjectured, not a cause for genuine hope, not a characteristic of our species to give us sincere and durable reason for optimism? Is the beauty of this mercy, this tenderness, not a remarkable thing? even when it is crude and ill-shaped and gauche. But more intriguingly still, what is it in Lindy Chamberlain Creighton's nature that has made her compile this remarkable collection? Was she a saver, a filer, a hoarder all along? Or is this almost obsessive retention of every single piece of paper evidence of her having been marked by her experience. This is a collection that includes even a credit card receipt which Sam Neill had torn up and thrown into a bin, as well as the wrapping paper with which Meryl Streep had wrapped a gift to her. Nothing which has even the smallest relevance to this story has been discarded. Why? You do not make drama out of information. 
You do not make drama out of facts or fallacies or even out of a pile of the most beautifully filed and annotated pages. You make it out of the conflict and contradictions and hidden, unexplained motives of being a human being. And so to make Letters to Lindy, I have conjectured a premise, a theory, a notion about what is happening in these 199 boxes. And Ray Matthew would, I know, understand this, that if I could explain this premise in a lecture, I would not have to write it as a play. It is no perverse sales pitch to say that if you want to fully understand what I think the relationship between Lindy and these letters is, you will have to come and see it played out in bodies, in space, in the moment, in a room full of others, on a night when the gift of inspired insight flows out of the performers. Because it is my belief as a playwright, a belief that I have given my life to, that we do not understand something because someone explains it to us in words. But only when we experience that realisation for ourselves in a moment of insight into which we have been artfully led. Any great teacher will tell you that it is when a student makes the connection themselves that you have true pedagogy. Any neurologist will describe the synaptic leaps the brain makes across the tiny nerve cells or neurons in that moment of realisation. Synapse, derived from the Greek sun together and haptane join, means the space across which nerve cells can join. And in the theatre, that place where we join together as a community, we embrace that synaptic leap as the moment when the audience suddenly realises what the playwright and the creative team have been doing for the time you have given them, what they have been building toward. And when you are in a theatre and that kind of revelation dawns on you and you see that insight, that perception that you can't put into words but only know, like in life, when theatre is that good, it kicks inside you like a second heartbeat. It overwhelms your rational experience like awe, like love, like joy. It takes you out of your preconceptions and individuality and joins you to something elusively larger and more purposeful than yourself. Does the process we theatre makers are trying to conjure sound mystical? Of course it is. It is an ultimate act of faith in our audience that they will make that leap that they will concentrate toward that perception, that they will go with us and reach for that kind of involvement. I went into the Lin Letters to Lindy rehearsals at the end of last week and I found what is usually to be found at the midpoint of any rehearsals, namely doubt and barely contained terror. In the middle of the rehearsals, the actors and director are beginning to close down the myriad possibilities that loomed at the beginning of the process and commit to decisions. And so they are literally mad with the volume of choices. My profound esteem for actors has so many dimensions, but chief among them is their ability to believe in the work of another and take it bodily into their voice and their heart the sheer courage of facing down their own demons, and not only on the playing stage, but at every part of the process. Much is made of the narcissism of actors. George Bernard Shaw once said that the trouble with a certain player was that, quote, he was in love with his wife and an actor can only really be afford, afford to be in love with himself. Personally, I think that narcissism or self-belief may be a precious antidote to the daily practice of putting on the voice 
and the soul of others. Mrs Chamberlain Creighton recently told me that several people have begun to look at these letters and in her words, been overwhelmed and given up. When I went to Lindy's house late in my research, she showed me a letter from a publisher who had spent a day looking through the collection and had then written to Lindy expressing the opinion that there was not much of an emotional range in there, that it was substantively too dull to publish. I looked at Lindy and sort of sputtered a day and we laughed hard together. And that is the only moment in the entire three years that I have been working on this collection in which I felt that I had glimpsed the smallest shard-like glint of what this has been like for her. For perhaps a second, I shared with her an understanding of the presumptions, the ignorance, the misinterpretations, the divergent views that this story rouses in each person. It is the beauty of Mrs Chamberlain Creighton's individuality that I as a dramatist have found utterly dynamic and complex and inspiring. Not that she has said she forgives, but that she does it. Not that she says she won't be a victim, but that she lives it. Not that she refuses to inhabit this story as a tragedy, but that she persuaded me to believe it both as a grief and a triumph. Yes, we can still be astonished by the plot twists and turns of this appalling story, but what I hope I can bring to this work is my particular perceptions into the uniqueness of Mrs Chamberlain Creighton's character, a uniqueness for which she has been cruelly punished. An individuality that continues to wriggle out from any box anyone, including me, cares to put her in. As my research moved from weeks into months, I have to admit that there were days when I would get overwhelmed by the righteous sermonising of some in the collection. It was on those days that I really could understand exactly how Mrs Chamberlain Creighton could, as she honestly told me, laugh about or be perversely entertained by some vituperative missive, some nut job with a bizarre theory or a crank with a marriage proposal. The sheer volume of compulsive blurting which manifested in endless pages of almost unreadable longhand about what Lindy meant to someone though they had never met her, or how they understood her deeply because of their own situation, or how they pitied her intensely, which was also common, really does start to grind you down. And I wasn't locked in a jail cell with no certainty of how this would end. At those times, the sheer innocence and beauty of the letters from children was a balm to the soul and a joy to the eye. Often they would be filed in groups, as Mrs Chamberlain Creighton had received them, and it was apparent that some U-Butte Sunday school teacher or passionate pro-Lindy school teacher had told the children that the activity for the day was to write to Mrs Chamberlain in prison. But as is consistent with children, no matter how much they are being guided in their perspective by the adults present, the real feelings of the kids bubble beautifully out in unexpected and humorous ways, such as this one from Paula, age nine. Dear Mrs Chamberlain, I hope you're feeling well. I think of you very often. We all believe in you. We give you all the hope we've got. There are a lot of people who would love to be your friend. Whatever I can send or give you that will help with your appeal, I'm going to empty my money box and purse and pillow and send you all the love, kindness and helpfulness I can give to you and your family. My brothers and sisters are well. There are their names are Jackie, Danelle, Damien. There are two girls and a boy. Jackie is five, Danelle 
is two, Damien is 11, I'm Paula, I'm nine. There are eight people, mum, dad, Jackie, Danelle, Damien, me, grandma and my uncle David. We all live in the same house. We live in the bush. It's fun. The main animals we find are koalas, kangaroos, wallabies and frilly neck lizard. We have a puppy, a cat, we had a guinea pig, but it died. And we are going to get another one when we get the cage fixed. I hope you like my letter. Please write back to me. I'll write again when I get your letter. Don't forget the love that I am giving you. Love from Paula, age nine. On the days when the rage and fury that this story had happened at all, on the mornings when the utter absurdity of the prosecution's case ground away at me like pendulous millstones of misery and anguish, when the idiocy of journalists or the bloodlust of the mob filled me with horror and sober irrational fear, I would return again and again to the children's letters for a laugh and a smile and their elusive elixir of hope. On the days when I would become thoroughly apoplectic about the vested interests and sheer commercial barbarity of what was done to make money out of this tragedy, the many children's letters exuded a power that went far beyond sentimental cuteness or distracting simplicity. It is the force of unadulterated affection among them, the abandon of their creative artworks and handmade cards, and the easy generosity of their offerings to this woman in jail suffering. And yet it was also by being so achingly engaged with the profundity of what these children's letters represented that I remembered the loss of Azaria, Lindy's loss of contact with her own living children while in prison, including the removal of Kalia soon after giving birth, and then when she was briefly let out on bail, the T-shirts that were printed in the Northern Territory, watch out Kalia, mummy's coming home. Last year, Mrs Chamberlain Creighton very generously invited me to home to look through a batch of letters before they were sent to the National Library. Sorted and filed in the usual manner, but here in sanitarium sultana boxes, rather than the NLA issue archive boxes, it was infinitely easier to access them than via the relatively simple but sometimes protracted NLA retrieval process. Here I only needed to bend the floor and select the files of interest, which I did. And that's when I felt an alarming tearing of the centre-back seam of the self-made dress that I was wearing. Lindy had already commented on a small gap in the side seam when I came in. Did you do that on the way up, she asked. And I had to admit that no, it had been like that when I got in the car. It was just that I was fully dressed when I noticed it and didn't want to change. Now, with the dress split right down the back, you can be sure that I regretted my tardiness and my face flushed red with shame that it would be noticed by Lindy, not just a seamstress herself, but a qualified tailor. I needn't have worried. Lindy, of course, immediately noticed the gaping tear and I immediately confided my horror of her disapproval. She talked for a short time about the likelihood of the problem being located in the bobbin. And then, as often happens, in this verbatim process which I undertake, when you reveal a vulnerability of your own, Lindy then proceeded to tell me of a wardrobe malfunction of her own on the flight to the second inquest. She said, I was all dressed up because I knew there would be reporters there the minute we left the plane. And I was sitting next to Stuart Tipple, my lawyer, because we were going over stuff. He asked for grape juice and then knocked it into my lap. 
Red grape juice and I was wearing a white dress that was starched. I spent half the trip in the toilets down the back with a hostess who gave me soda water to get it out. I had to wash it about eight times but I got it all out and somebody had a hair dryer and the hostess is going like this because we couldn't iron it and whenever one or other would come up from the back, one or other would grab the other side and try to dry it tight. Was it linen, I asked. It wasn't linen, but it was starched, and now it just looked like it had been squashed in the centre, runched up. I mean, I felt very self-conscious. It didn't turn up in any pictures, but the look on Stuart's face was priceless. We laughed and we laughed. Lindy is without doubt among one of the smartest people I've ever met. Whip smart, she doesn't miss a trick, doesn't misremember a detail. And she is fully alive in the present, able to see the difficulty of turning up to an inquest accused of murder in a white dress with the ghost of a red stain down the front. One of the things that did happen to me from having daily contact with these letters was an increase in my levels of caution. Oh, all right, let's say my anxiety. I hesitated to use that word because it seems rather melodramatic and the anxiety was, I'm sure, specifically related to being in almost constant contact with a situation that was at least appalling, at worst perversely and maliciously unjust. Cognitive behaviour therapists will tell you that 90% of what we worry about never happens. But here I was exposed every day to a situation where the worst case scenario for the Chamberlain family comes true. I don't think it helped that in recent years my work has been concerned with children of prisoners, child sexual assault victims, train crash survivors and incarcerated teenage girls. I've also written plays about marine pilots negotiating a shipping disaster, same-sex domestic violence survivors, people grieving the loss of relatives in war and the massacre of Aboriginal people in Western Sydney. Therapists might call what I sometimes experience as transmitted trauma. The way it manifested for me was to make my already fastidious, sweary nature go into hyperdrive. On any project of this nature, I take legal advice. Much of what is in the archive are orphan works, that is, works for whom the copyright owner cannot be found. But still, I posted, I combed the electoral rolls, which are very conveniently also at the National Library, the yellow pages. I took every avenue possible to find the 30-year-old owner of many of these letters. In the end, I have to hope that anyone who wrote to Lindy will want to be publicly acknowledged for their thoughtfulness, for taking the trouble to write, and will give me the benefit of the doubt. The anxiety did, I must admit, leak over into some of the rest of my life, turning off the PowerPoints when I went out of the house, all of them, making sure I knew where all the insurance documents were kept, putting a cover over the built-in little camera in my laptop. I think that there is a legacy in doing work that involves daily empathy with the pain and suffering of others. I think that is the work that artists do for the community. We hear these stories. People may think that it is out of respect that I always involve the communities that I work with so strongly in the work that I do, and certainly respect is part of the equation. But the far greater truth 
of this work is that these community members, the people to whom these things have happened, are the ones who can most safely and sympathetically guide you through it. And so it was here, without having long conversations about it or placing any more demand on her time than I thought was reasonable, Lindy herself became my exemplar of strength with regards how to deal with the anxiety that this story provoked. I never asked her or told her of the effect on me. I simply watched how she coped with the material, how she reacted and responded, how she resolved to go on. In my copy of her autobiography, The Dingo's Got My Baby, Lindy wrote a very beautiful dedication to me. When I read it, I thought to myself, she will never know how much that means to me. But the point about Lindy Chamberlain Creighton is that she does know she does know the value of a line or a verse or a thought, and that is why she has filed them here all so meticulously. Letters to Lindy will open at the Maragong Theatre in Wollongong before touring to Canberra and Sydney, and later, we hope, everywhere else. Who knows how many thousands of people will then see and hear that along with the horrific small-minded and shameful behaviour of that time, there was an enormous outpouring of kindness, understanding and faith that justice would finally be done for this grieving mother and the rest of her family. If they do, it is a testament to the way in which this collection has been protected with such care and dedication. Margie Byrne, Robin Holmes, Katrina Anderson, Kylie Scroop, to every archivist who has helped me here, I esteem you as the custodians of this bounty. In fact, Letters to Lindy ends with a scene between two librarians cataloguing the collection. I won't give it away, but one of them does say to the other, this collection is a testament to one of the most devoted mothers in the history of Australia. Unfeeling because she didn't perform the waterworks of hysterical grief for six months and then move on, this mother is still cherishing this baby and she will go on cherishing her and enshrining her till her own death. And Azaria and every piece of paper associated with her and every emotion that she has inspired will be housed here, entombed here, enshrined here forever. I recently heard an Australian filmmaker say that in her office, in the edit suite, they joke, you should never call the film important. It is a sentiment with which I utterly disagree. My work is earnestly, indelibly important. I would not waste your time in asking you to come and see it unless I thought it was among the most important work that I've ever done and am ever likely to do. Indeed, I would shamelessly argue that theatre is one of the most enduring art forms precisely because it allows us to come together as a community, to reflect and decide what our civic responsibilities and responses are an opportunity to show who we are by taking an action, not mouthing platitudes. We must go to the theatre as a community to reconcile our response to Mrs Chamberlain Creighton because as a community, we not only did her and her entire family a great wrong, but we did a great wrong to ourselves. We wounded ourselves with shameful mob-mindedness and we belittled ourselves with crass, ill-informed spite and we need to understand that there are those among us who did not do that and who now take the time and trouble so many years later to amend that. 
Mrs Chamberlain Creighton told me how when the 2012 inquest finally declared that a dingo took Azaria, the comedian and writer Wendy Harmer apologised to her. Lindy said, I asked her why she apologised after all those years and she said, because I'm better than that. I wonder if we too are better than that now. I do think that we are still better than the need to demand that in all theatrical encounters we are merely distracted and entertained. I trust that we are not yet so decadent that everything we do must be motivated by what we will get rather than what we might give. I believe that we are not yet so broken that we need to cripple our arts industries and impoverish our public institutions to punish them for their lucidity and diversity. Can we really not afford to lavish funds on our culture or are we shortchanging ourselves for another reason? I know from my personal experience that Australians are among the most generous people in the world. My evidence for that statement is this. In 2010, I worked with the Western Desert Nyampawalcha Palyantja Jutaka Aboriginal Corporation or Purple House. The Alice Springs Beanie Festival as well as the Nyunjatjara, Pitjatjantjara, Yakunjatjara, or MPY Women's Council, on a play about a friendship between an Indigenous Central Desert woman and a non-Indigenous woman from Sydney. After show donations from two seasons of this play netted $60,000, which was used by the Purple House to fund a mobile dialysis unit, allowing Indigenous elders to remain on country for their treatment, rather than languish in Alice Springs. When the play toured to 23 venues, including Canberra last year, audiences gave directly to the Purple House again. Sarah Brown, their CEO, told me two Novocastrians moved to make a sponsored bike ride to the centre, turned up to present them with several hundred dollars raised by their charity trek. Australians are among the most generous people in the world. In the 90 minutes it took for those actors to play out their drama, audiences realised the issues and were moved to act on them at the play's end. I'm not suggesting that all theatre can directly address health issues, all the health issues we face, but I want to finish by acknowledging the increasing recognition that artists are skilled communications experts whose empathetic art forms must be harnessed as part of the suite of ways to approach future change. I have recently been commissioned by the Charles Perkins Centre, which is a world-leading scientific research facility at the University of Sydney. They um, do research into diabetes, obesity and cardiovascular disease and taking their lead from their maverick and visionary namesake, Charles Perkins, they perceive that to communicate their profound and difficult cultural health and scientific research to the public, they need to collaborate with skilled, effective communications experts, artists, who can quite literally rummage around in the bowels of not only our bodies and minds, but also our spirits and our psyches. From here on, it is going to be necessary for artists and companies to connect with our wider communities of interest, intellect and innovation. It is always going to be like this now. For some of us, it has been like this for all our career. In 2010, the Australia Council's economic study on professional artists in Australia found that more than half of all artists, 56%, earn less than $10,000 from their creative income. And still they're cutting. There will now always be a fight. We must learn how to draw a line in the sand and suit up for it. 
We are not defeated. We are only always going to have to argue for the change we want to see and the culture we want to be. We must resist the indulgence of despair and the balm of self-pity, not because it is rousing to say so, but because it is destructive not to do so. It is a fallacious estimation of where we are and the chances we still have. I don't say this in the flurry of the circumstances of the arts cuts of the present. I judge myself as I judge others, not by what I say, but by what I do. And what I have done all my writing life for 30 years is to write the story of the power of collective action. I wrote it in my play Run Rabbit Run about the triumph of the South Sydney rugby league football team. I wrote it in my play Parramatta Girls about the struggle for recognition of the sadistic abuse that was visited upon teenage girls in a state institution in Sydney. It is present in this story of Letters to Lindy. If I have used my work to interrogate a point of view, it is the belief that where we have real hope is in our capacity to act together as a community, to be steadfast in our purpose and our will. We are not defeated. We are not reduced. We must be emboldened and infuriated and committed to action to defend artists and culture and learning and scholarship and history. There are honest and yes, noble men and women who are working to make our arts and culture worthy of our belief. And we are among them. We support them. We are what stands between them becoming hollow and broken. We charge our artists, our writers, our dramatists with the burden of tearing the veil away from our collective delusions. But we ask them to do so in order to reaffirm our striving to make our communities equal to our belief. In the spirit of Ray Matthew, in honour of his legacy, in esteem of his patrons and this generous bequest, I want to express my gratitude for letting this playwright into this national repository of our history. Thank you. Alana, thank you so much for a really lyrical and eloquent um, lecture about the power and the nature of theatre and of art. Now, if that hasn't roused you to thinking of possibly a question or two that you might like to ask Alana, who is very happy to answer a couple of questions, well, I don't know. There are microphones on either side, and the only thing I would ask you is to use the microphone so that we can all hear the question. Uh, first of all, thank you. That was really enjoyable. And you touched on uh, something there. You said in the it was sort of a snapshot of the 80s. As somebody who wasn't around in the 80s, <laughs> uh, I would be interested to hear sort of what those letters captured and, and maybe looking back now from contemporary Australia, what, what were the differences there? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, 
Look, I think that there's a couple of things. The first is I think that we have a more complex understanding of, of how people grieve and what reactions might be. I think that because of the 24-hour news cycle, we see a bigger diversity of people in, you know, situations where they're grieving. And we see the, um, you know, the sort of hysterical and upset reaction, but we also see a kind of diversity and we understand that people have a different experience. I think that's probably, I think there's a more, community understanding of, of, of difference of, of grief. Um, I think that the Aboriginal uh, side of the story the, it w is quite different. I mean, this was 1980, the trackers weren't believed. I think that, you know, potentially, I mean, I, I, again, I, I would defer to an Indigenous person to talk about that, but, you know, what has changed in that time? Um, there are a lot of letters in the collection from Indigenous people who uh, were talking about their elders knowing that dingoes had taken, you know, um, children and that that was one of the things that Lindy talked to me about, the kind of difference between the letters she was getting about dingoes and from dingo kind of experts and what the public knowledge of that was. I mean, I think we became, we all became incredible experts in dingo behaviour for, for some bizarre reason, you know. So, I mean, I, I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know that I can say, say a lot. When I look through the collection, I mean, certainly the fashions were better. <laughs> the 80s, the music was better, you know. I don't, look, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, that's what the play conjectures about, how we've changed as a, as a society, yeah. Thank you very much, Alana. What a, what a lovely lecture. Um, uh, did Lindy respond to any of the letters? And did she, you know, how did she pick and choose which ones she responded to? And who was the reindeer card from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I just want to say um, I've, I've sort of been very strict about not ever speaking for um, Mrs Chamberlain Creighton or on her behalf. And excitingly she's going to be at the library on the August the 7th so you know there are there are um, questions like to her about what did she think of them that you can put directly to her I mean certainly um, what's amazing about the collection is it's got a star system and there are stars that what she actually thinks of the letter I came across a very vituperative horrible letter and it had seven stars on it I said Lindy why has this got seven stars and she said well this is the extreme this is like the pole star of evil you know um, and and but but through the collection she often comments puts comments on letters she'll put a tick at the top of of something and it'll say answered um, you know, there were, it was just extraordinary. It was like having her on my shoulder because it, it, it's, it speaks of her experience every single file. In the top right-hand corner of the, of the files, she's put a little yellow post-it note in which she praises what's in all the letters. So people say, you know, has she read them? And I say, well, she not only has read them, she's annotated them. And she knows whatever, what's in all of them. And I would refer to her, like when I said we were opening in Wollongong, I said, were there many letters from Wollongong? She said, oh, I got one from the, the, the seamen's, uh, you know, the, what's it called, the um, mission to seafarers in Port Kembla. Like she just tells, you know, knows it. So um, the Christmas card, I can't actually remember at the moment, but it will be in the play. <laughs>
Is there one last question? Well, <laughs> I, I just went to Uluru a couple of weeks ago and was amazed at the um, thirst for knowledge and experience that both Australians and also international people have. It's fabulous. Um, so my first question is, what was the, I also have amnesia from the 80s, <laughs> for different reasons, what was the, um, <laughs> what was the international response? Because I really don't recall that. And secondly, um, another question, was there also a correspondence sent to Michael Chamberlain? Because I imagine that there would have been some different reactions to him as well. Thank you. Um, just to take your first question, the international correspondence is, is enormous. Um, there are letters in there and in the play from Canada, from Austria, from lots from America when the film came out, some beautiful letters from teenagers in Wales and in England. I mean, it's quite astonishing, the penetration of the story. But, and what's amazing for me here is also when I go out you know, when I've been speaking about the play, I've been getting emails and people come up to me in foyers and tell me their story with Lindy. And what's extraordinary for me as a playwright is that we, as artists, struggle to, you know, find stories that everybody feels that they can buy into, everybody feels they have some connection to. And this, this is definitely one, you know. Um, your second question was about... The what? Oh, Michael. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. No, um, I have quite consciously, because of the relationship the library has with Mrs Chamberlain Creighton, I have stuck only to letters from her. There is enormous amount of letters to both of them, to the children. Um, there's, there's other collections of some of the activists. I haven't touched any of that. Um, 67 boxes of just letters to Lindy was was kind of my, my my limit but I mean you know perhaps some someone else will write a play about about the other family members yeah I'm very sorry to break into the conversation with Alana but I think it's going to be time to go upstairs for refreshments and for more conversation Alana has said that she would be delighted to talk to you further. Should you wish to buy some of Alana's published plays? I was going to say scripts, but published, yeah, play scripts. Thank you. We have them in the bookshop and they are available for you at a 10% discount. And there is bound to be a subject of interest to you because her output is so extraordinarily varied. Now, as we go upstairs for, for refreshments and for conversation, I want to make special mention of our accommodation partner, TFE Hotels, and our catering partners, Eden Road Wines and Bookplate Cafe, and thank them for their contribution to the library's events program. I'd like to say thank you to all of you for joining us for this evening to celebrate Australia's literary culture and in particular to celebrate and to hear a bit more from one of our most eloquent voices. Alana, as she said, is going to be back at the library and she will be back at the library on Sunday the 7th of August with Mrs Lindy Ch uh, Chamberlain Creighton and 
don't forget that the play Letters to Lindy will be playing at the Canberra Theatre the week after. So there is a whole lot more for you to do at the National Library and elsewhere in Canberra, and we hope that you'll enjoy doing it all. But first of all, what we're going to do is to go upstairs to have a drink and some more conversation, and we look forward to seeing you upstairs, but you can't do that until you've said thank you to Alana once again. Yeah.